Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Easter 1916. And while some of us were preparing to fight and die for Ireland, the French composer Maurice Ravel received an Easter egg in the post. Ravel was well established as a composer at that stage. He'd enlisted in the First World War and he'd been sent to Verdun in the northeast of France as a driver. And there he transported munitions, often under heavy German fire, in his truck, which he nicknamed Adelaide. France had set up a sort of pen pal system whereby women would write letters to soldiers at the front for moral and material support. These women were called Marraine de Guerre, literally godmothers of war. And in April 1916, Ravel's Marraine de Guerre, who happened to be the mother of one of his piano pupils, sent him a care package. An Easter egg. She'd already sent him bouillabaisse, lobster, asparagus and mayonnaise in other care packages. I hope Ravel appreciated being French on those occasions. Because if he'd been Irish, he'd no doubt have been sent a lump of hairy bacon and a miraculous medal. Imagine for a moment that the sun is beaming down from a cloudless azure sky and you're driving down the coast road, the Corniche, from Biarritz in the southwest of France. The road twists and rises and dips as you head towards the Spanish border. You pass through Saint-Jean-de-Luz, you cross the Nivelle River, and there on the right, a beautiful little Basque village called Cibur. And down at the harbour, at number 12, Quai de la Nivelle, the great French composer Maurice Ravel was born on the 7th of March, 1875. I grew up near another border, in Uri. The first time I ever heard an orchestra live was the Ulster Orchestra playing Ravel's Bolero. I remember this long, twisting melody that never seemed to end, getting louder and louder till a big, noisy finale. I loved it. And I'd seen pictures of this dapper, white-haired guy in his tailored dark suit, smoking a cigarette. And Ravel looked cool. Maybe that's where my lifelong love affair with France came from. I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean... We never went there on childhood holidays. That was Galway. But I distinctly remember a choir trip to Paris in 1986. I was 16. I stuck an Edith Piaf cassette in my Walkman, doused myself in Drakkar Noir and bought a taupe-coloured polo neck with batwing sleeves in Gallery Lafayette. Formative. And formidable. I studied music at school, and guess what? Ravel's string quartet was one of the set works. And still to this day, it brings me right into a silent film filled with elegance, beauty and heartbreak and French people walking impossibly fast. I wanted to read more about Paris, the legendary cafes of Montmartre, Eric Satie in his grey velvet suits, Renoir, Little Toulouse-Lautrec, Absinthe, a decadence. Ravel's family lived just below Montmartre. They left the village of Cibur and moved up to the Big Smoke when he was very young. 
but his mother was Basque and he always held on tightly to that Basque heritage. And the Basque country fascinated me. A people who defined themselves regardless of internationally recognised borders. I admired the fact that their Basque language, Euskara, remains proudly unconnectable to any other European language. Nothing prepares the innocent tourist coming into the Basque country for the first time for that proliferation of X's and K's and Z's in their place names. Similarly, Ravel, in his music, created a patchwork of distinctive and vivid musical colours that you just didn't hear anywhere else. All of this bubbled away quietly inside my own head for years. But what crystallised it for me was a bit of human mitochondrial genetics. Now, you weren't expecting that. As far as I understand, most of your DNA is stored in the nucleus of your cells, but some of it is stored in another bit, your mitochondria. And while the information in the nucleus comes from both your parents, the stuff that's stored in your mitochondria comes only from your mother. Human mitochondrial genetics traces your maternal line right back to a prehistoric woman, who may or may not have existed, but that's not important right now. It groups all Europeans into seven distinct clans, and at the head of each one, the clan mother, Tara, Jasmine, Ulrika and Velda, amongst others. Out of the blue one day, someone came to our work and invited a group of us to take part in a free mitochondrial genetic experiment. Now this is years before who do you think you are. It won't hurt, they said. We just need to capture your DNA and it'll tell us something about where your people came from. A simple swab of the inside of the cheek and results in a few weeks. By the time the call came for the big reveal, we sat in a circle like a self-help group and it turned out my clan was Clan Helena. She was born some 20,000 years ago but this was the bit that really stopped me in my tracks. Clan Helena, the maternal line of my DNA, was most concentrated in southwestern France and northern Spain. The Basque region. That's where my people came from. So for all we know, that... Suave, debonair and talented musician, me, could be related to Maurice Ravel. I can't see me driving that coast road to the Basque country any time soon, but in whichever room in the house I choose to unwrap my eagerly anticipated Easter egg this year, I'll be thinking of my great-uncle Maurice. The day I visited the seaside resort of Tenby, Wales was bracing itself for its warmest Easter on record. Families were spread out on the strand as I pulled my wheelie case across its soft sand towards the shoreline to wait for the boat for Coldy Island. 
I had booked a retreat with the Cistercian monks there. I watched as the boat pulled in and all the sunburnt excursionists got off, but then the boatman made to go, without waiting for any passengers. I approached them and told them I needed to go to Caldy, but they said there wouldn't be another boat to the island till the bank holiday Monday, when a funeral would be taking place. But Abbot Richard said I would be collected here today, I said. Abbot Richard, the two men, exchanged glances. Abbot Richard's been dead five years. But I have an email from him, I said, foostering in my pocket. Clearly there'd been some mix-up, but they agreed to take me on board. Soon the strand was retreating into miniature as we hurtled across the narrow sound towards Caldy. I disembarked at the tiny harbour and walked along a well-kept path between white fencing. The Norsemen called it Caldy on account of its harsh climate, but this afternoon the mown lawns were drowsy with the warm hum of insects and birdsong. Bells were ringing as I stood at the porch of the monastery, an arts and crafts villa which looked more like a colonial club than a religious institution. The guest master appeared. Abbot Richard had indeed died, he explained, but his email lived on, operated by his nephew who lived on the mainland. Normally there were no guests at this time of year, but he was happy to welcome me. Where was he from? Antwerp, he said. When I said I was from Dublin, he changed. I had finally caught his full attention. He repeated Dublin, slowly savouring both syllables of this seemingly fabled place. He smiled. Brother Michael is from Dublin, he said. I was led to a small room in a wing away from the main house. You're welcome to join us for prayer in the chapel and meals in the refectory, he said, handing me a key, a weighty piece of iron, before hurrying off for noon prayers. And so I passed Easter on the holy island of Caldy with the twelve surviving members of its Cistercian community, which had been there since 1912. But the Christian presence on the island goes back much further, as indicated by the ruined chapel on the highest point of the island, dating from the 6th century. Silence is generally observed in the season of Lent, but some people discreetly introduced themselves to me as quiet moments arose. One man appeared in the graveyard, Another brought his tractor engine to a shuddering halt along the cliff path. Another addressed me as he set about the washing up, handing me a drying cloth. Each other story. A prison sentence for armed robbery, an abandoned career as golf professional, a practising Buddhist from Amsterdam who now looked after the ever faulty electrics of the place. All pointed out that Brother Michael was also from Dublin. Brother Michael... I would love him, they told me. Everybody did. But sadly we would not meet now, for it was he who was reposing in the chapel, that epicentre to where all kept returning day and night, to reconvene their choir and sing the hours, give thanks, and literally mark time. The main meal was a vegetarian preparation consisting of beans and rice. Tea was without milk. Prayers were read through a microphone as we ate. Then the monks hurried off, under that constant pressure of timekeeping which attends the strict routine of monastic life. At dawn on Easter Sunday, I followed the twelve men up to the ruined chapel on the hillside. The current abbot, a huge man resembling Peter Schmeichel, arms outstretched, cut 
an almost shamanic figure intoning to the rising sun. Here in the early mists before the heat of the day, among ancient stones a lone bell tolling, you sense the rugged wildness of the early church and primitive wonder of the Easter miracle. The Easter meal was bountiful. Spring lamb had been sent by a farmer in Glamorgan. Another benefactor from Yorkshire had given a side of beef. Baked cakes, tin fruits and ice cream were wheeled in along with wine, Guinness and Coca-Cola. An instalment from a Geoffrey Archer audiobook played over the sound system, but it was hard to follow with the increasing volume of conversation brought about by contentment after long sacrifice. That evening I took a last walk around the island to the lighthouse to see where for centuries it had shone out to those navigating the treacherous waves of the Bristol Channel. Then up to the Ogham Stone with its mysterious inscription and back around to see the winking delights of Tenby and hear the cries from the roller coaster across the straits through the balmy night air. The weather had broken the next morning as I waited in drizzling rain on the quayside. A small speck became larger as the boat came into view. As its passengers disembarked purposefully, I heard familiar accents. It was the extended family of Brother Michael who had made the journey from his hometown to pay their last respects. Easter Sunday, and I'm walking with my daughter down Green Street in Dingle. The silvery sun is not giving out much heat, and I'm zipped up in a warm anorak. My daughter is wearing what I can only describe as slashed jeans and a T-shirt. Before we left the house, she dismissed my suggestion that she put on a pullover or jacket. She's been living and working in Dingle for a couple of years now, and is well used to all sorts of southwesterly weather. It never seems to bother her. Then, on turning a corner, an icy blast of wind hits us, and the man coming towards us points a warning finger at her, shaking his head, saying, Skubuk on Scaravine, who, Gerline, Kirkota art. I knew that he was echoing my own advice to her, but my schoolbook Irish couldn't cope with the word. Scaravine. What is Scaravine? Is it some kind of mythical whale or a mountain monster who would snatch my daughter away? He was dressed in oilskins, a fisherman, no doubt. He was surely an expert on the vagaries of West Coast weather. But Scaravine? I never heard of it. Although I'm in Dingle, I'm reminded of a long-ago time in Limerick. It was Easter Sunday and we were on our way to church and I was perished with the cold in my new clothes. 
my tartan kilt my mother made for me was short and my knees were subjected to an icy breeze. Thank God for the iron pullover and berry she knitted for me. At least they were warm and windproof. I liked my new Clark sandals with their T-strap and the three little petals of openwork on the instep. And white ankle socks had replaced my winter knee-high woolen ones. I shivered and whinged, but nobody took any notice of me. I didn't know back then that my mother was upholding an ancient tradition of wearing new clothes at Easter. In Easter times past, you had to have something new to wear to church on Easter Sunday. It was believed that if you went to church on Easter Sunday without wearing at least one brand new garment, the birds of the air would show their disapproval by dropping a blob on them. In the course of time, this superstition became confused in people's minds, so that it is now said to be lucky to be decorated with bird droppings. But back to that word I heard in Dingle, scaravine. As luck should have it, the same man who said it came into O'Flaherty's that evening. He went to the counter and I managed to gain his attention by paying for his pint. My daughter looked at me with raised eyebrows as she served it to him. Scaravine, says I. Sha, says he. Codicee, says I. Did I see him wink at my daughter before he began to tell me in his beautiful, rounded, monster Irish? So now I know. Scaravine. The word comes from the Irish phrase Garavhian na coach. The harsh weather of the cuckoo, which over time became Garavhian, and thus to Garavine, and finally Scaravine. It is the unpredictable weather that strikes any time from late March to the end of May. The Scaravine can happen suddenly, without warning in certain places. There is a complicated meteorological explanation for the blast of wintry weather. And that fisherman in Dangany Kusha was right. Skjubakan Garavine who. So to quote another old saying, cast not clout till May is out. Sunday, 1959, fell on March 29th, just a week before I was born. While my mother was preparing for a birth she may well have feared in her late 40s, another woman I read about recently, Eileen Dignam in East Belfast, was mourning the loss of her girl, Olive, who had just died from consumption in the Throne Hospital, White Abbey, a sanatorium overlooking Belfast Lock. While my mother was putting together what few scraps she could to prepare for my arrival, Eileen was mourning her terrible loss. Just weeks before, 
Eileen had bought an Easter egg for her daughter Olive, an Easter egg the child would never enjoy. An Easter egg manufactured by Duncans of Edinburgh and displayed in a beautifully decorated cardboard box, now vintage with gentle motifs of pastel flowers, snowdrops, violets and freesias, a goldfinch pert and bright amongst the blooms. An Easter egg Eileen Dignam would keep safe and untouched until her own death 34 years later. A keepsake connecting her to her child. A cherished memento she could not bear to discard. This precious confectionery, unopened from 1959, is now in the possession of Olive's nephew, Terry Goldsmith, where he keeps it safe, away from heat, taking it out now and then to show younger family members. It is a treasured heirloom linking the generations, an enshrinement of the love that binds us all in memory. I have a treasured Easter object on my kitchen dresser too, an egg cup gifted to me by a neighbour, Lizzie Ryan, when as a child I was confined to bed with the mumps. It is in fact the only object I have from the house where I was born and spent my childhood. Easter eggs were rare then, but Lizzie managed to get a little chocolate egg, no bigger than a hen egg, held in an egg cup depicting a pig. Only a fragment of colour remains to show that the pig was sporting the blue dungarees, indicating that he was perky, of pinky and perky fame, the singing duo of puppet pigs with the speeded up voices popular in the 60s. Though chipped and cracked, Perky's little glazed face still exudes a kind of porcine placidity as if, despite the tumult of the decades, he has held fast to some unperturbed certainties. This little egg cup held only one chocolate egg in its time, but it was the receptacle from which countless hen eggs were eaten. Eggs produced by my childhood companion, a pet hen called Betty. A newspaper cutting from the front page of the Irish Press, published in April 1962, just before Easter, told the nation that while some children would be eagerly looking forward to their chocolate eggs, I would be relishing the daily gift of a fresh egg from my hen Betty. The cutting is softened and crumbling to fragments now, but the image depicting the child me hurried into best dress and cardigan is there a bow in my hair as I bend my head to that faithful little hen. The story goes that a photographer, Matt Doolan from Cork, was travelling on our road when he spotted me holding the hen. Matt Doolan had an eye for the unusual. He frequently contributed to the radio programme Dear Sir or Madam. He would soon be appearing regularly on the panel of The Late Late Show, a pipe-smoking Mr Everyman in his check jacket. I can just about imagine the excitement and near-impossible hope when he explained to my mother that he took photos for the newspaper and thought Betty and I would be good subjects. It must have been a moment of amazed delight for my parents when the photograph featured on the front page of the Irish press 
The schoolmaster saw it first and dispatched some young lad to sprint up to our cottage, waving the paper and shouting his message. I'm sure the Wellington boots the lad was wearing that day were transformed into Hermes' winged sandals, as urgent as an emissary of the gods he brought his news. This Easter day, I think again of our heirlooms. I think of the Easter egg intended for a girl called Olive who died from consumption the year I was born. An Easter egg so lovingly preserved for decades in Belfast. I remember Lizzie Ryan who brought me the chocolate egg in an egg cup with a pig motif, an object I still count amongst my treasures. I think of Matt Doolan, the photographer, stopping that April day to take the picture of me and my hen Betty. But most of all, I think of the lad dispatched by the kindly schoolmaster to bring the Irish press to our house. I picture his winged heels and his excited shouting as he relayed the news that must have been so pleasing. Dark Mother. Something, Yeshua of Grace, about the guard dog wagging the stump of his tail to every traveller. Something about the courage to be unshaken, lone in the dark kitchen, smoke from damp peat catching in her throat. That her dull, reiterated labours, from the black kettle to the wash tub by the back door, from the hens scratching in the yard dirt, from the washing line back to the caterpillar-chewed cabbage may not be in vain. You are wisdom, way beyond our ways. Yet you too left a mother in tears, and there was talk in the oil light of an absent father, of work in far-distance exile, Liverpool, Birmingham, Glasgow till she sat lone in the morning kitchen, cold in the absence of sons. You, Yeshua of grace, walked in your own sadness, suffering flesh, skiffed a chisel against your finger, drawing blood, dropped a clutch of eggs. Be Miriam's son, emigre, be joy of her joy, pain of her pain, stillness of her stillness. Mm -hmm. 
This is the time of year when the sight of lambs bouncing on the fields gladdens your eyes. The time you remember the lines of the poem you learned at school. All in an April evening when April airs are abroad, the sheep with their little lambs pass me by on the road. On the lowlands you'll see lambs cavorting as early as February. Up on the Wicklow, Connemara or Kerry Hills, you won't see them until April. It takes a hardier breed of sheep to live on the hills. The black-faced mountainy for the hill, the Suffolk down for the lowland. My family's farm was a mix of lowland and hill, and so the flock was a mix of Suffolk and mountainy. I loved sheep. They were easier to handle than our cattle. I loved their steadily gazing eyes. I liked how, when a hogget yo had difficulty giving birth, it was more readily put to rights than was the case with a heifer. Heifers lost calves, but yo's too lost lambs, or sometimes lambs were saved and mothers died. The tottering lamb then had to be cared for. It was brought into the aga-heated kitchen and coaxed with a baby bottle of whisky-enriched cow's milk. Once strengthened, it was introduced to a foster mother. This might be a yo that had lost her lamb, or sometimes a yo that had lost one of two lambs. Sometimes it didn't work. If the would-be foster mother turned on the wee lamb and poked it out of her sight, the orphan remained on the whisky-doctored bottle. It was even allowed the heat of the kitchen a few days longer, and so got used to loafing around the house, like a juvenile delinquent. Once its sucking action improved, the teat of the baby bottle was exchanged for a black teat, made of more durable rubber, and the bottle for a porter bottle. What didn't change, though, was that the pet lambs remained close to the home front, didn't mingle with the flock. Each year, a clump of three or four small lambs hung about our garden, and when anyone came out the hall door, they ran to them, bleating loudly in expectation of a bottle feed. As children, we loved feeding them, hearing the tap-tap of small hoofs across the cement yard, the wet black noses, and how, when they'd guzzled down all the milk, they poked and butted against you for more. They had shiny buds of horns barely emerging like marbles, that you anointed with your thumbprints. While you'd have such fun with these lambs, they ran around after you, they even played with you in the hay barn, you'd notice that the adults were quite indifferent to them. Adults evaluated animals in terms of gain, in terms of meat, and pet lambs just were not gainful. They weren't mother-suckled. In fact, cow's milk contained some ingredient which didn't suit them. The outcome was pet lambs didn't display the robustness of the pasture-ranging lamb, weren't as wild, sported a wee pot-belly. And then came bounteous summer and the return of the pet lambs to the flock. The lambs of the field were weaned from the mothers. Our little pocket of pets was driven out of the garden and into the field where they were introduced to their cousins.
and for a few days the newly separated field lambs bleated for their mothers and the mothers answered from faraway fields. While the pet lambs stood in a clump at the farmyard gate waiting for their bottles but didn't get them. Though we children continued to pet them for a while, they eventually got lost within the flock. And when it came around shearing time and dosing time of the following year, you wondered, was that your pet lamb of the previous year? And was that a look of recognition, even friendship, it gave you? No, it had forgotten you. But when it came time for the last journey, and you assisted in loading the lambs onto the truck, you sometimes stopped to consider. That lamb, that meek one, that pot-bellied one, the one that didn't look wild enough to attempt jumping out of the truck, taking it to the factory, had he been your pet? All in the April evening, did you think on the Lamb of God? I don't know. But looking back from here, it felt like that. Laudate for Charlie Travers. For 60 years he carries psalms in his pockets. His feet move with the ease of one who has measured the lightness of his own pace. A bell rings at noon and six to the rhythm of his trimmings and vespers while a faint hum trills from his hearing aid. Eyes that are kind and ever outward deflect his ageing need for a helping hand. His curved back is more a genuflection. He reflects my concern with his heed for me. In alb and surplus, he cloaks me in his faith. He is the rosary at my grandfather's grave, the purple stole that calms my mother's leaving, the consoling hymn across generations of grief, through my stained glass woman's heart he radiates hope, as brilliant as the lonula of the monstrance, so blessed in his hands. When he presses his palms together in prayer, he is a church spire high above the street. On this morning's programme we heard Me and Maurice Ravel by John Toll. Easter on Caldy Island was by Jonathan Dignan. The Scaravine at Easter was by Mae Leonard. Easter Heirlooms by Margaret Galvin. Dark Mother, a poem by John F. Dean. The Pet Lamb was by Leo Cullen. And Laudate, a poem for Charlie Travers, was by Noel Linsky. And the music, String Quartet in F Major, Second Movement by Ravel, played by the Ebene Quartet. Salve Regina, the Cistercian version, sung by St. Dominic's Priory Choir. The Cuckoo of Glen was by Colin Umra.
The Velvet Glove, the Pinky and Perky theme by Pinky and Perky. Maria Sopra la Carpinese by La Pagetta. And All in the April Evening, played by the Grimethorpe Colliery Band. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.